do not be afraid. Three times in the Gospel of Luke, in the first one and a half chapters, an angel will say to one of the characters in the story, do not be afraid. The first time is in the temple with Zechariah, an old and aging priest, a man who, along with his wife Elizabeth, have never brought a child into this world. It was to be a promise to them, a sign that God had blessed them, at least in their understanding. This child has never come until an angel comes to say to Zechariah and also to his wife, you will have a baby. They're frightened by this news. Zechariah is overwhelmed, overcome by it. And the angel says, do not be afraid. Then in the text that Ron just read for you, Mary is surprised by this angel visit. The text says that she was perplexed, a hint there of fear. And the angel says, do not be afraid. And then in chapter 2, Mary and Joseph have traveled to Bethlehem. She's given birth to the baby, born in a stable, laid in a manger. Nearby there are shepherds in their fields watching their flock, and an angel army appears to them, an angel host in the sky, and an angel comes to them and says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy. We'll, we'll save the rest of that for later tonight. We'll get, we don't want to rush to Bethlehem. For, for this moment, let's stay with Mary and the angel Gabriel. She is, as Greek Christians like to call her, the Theotokos, that is, the, the God-bearer. She is bringing this Son of God, this Son of the Most High, into the world. She is the one bearing God to earth to us. This news for her, though, is perplexing. Don't be afraid, the angel says. Don't be afraid. Perhaps this word is a word not only for Mary, but for the church, for the world. There's a tendency, though, when we hear this story to, to put all sorts of things upon Mary, to imply this about her theologically or that about her sociologically, or, or to, to see all these other implications and understandings that, frankly, are not there in this story. For what catches me most about her is her ordinariness. She's, in some ways, a no one from nowhere. She may be 14, 15 years old, just a young girl, really, no money, no power, no fame, no fortune, no thing at all. Just this young woman. She's no heroine, as a typical ancient Near Eastern story would set her up. She's no Cleopatra. She's not given wisdom and grace and power and strength. She's not leading armies against Rome. No, no. She seems like nothing more on the surface than a poor girl from Nazareth with nothing Nothing whatsoever that God might use. But as the story unfolds, though, we begin to see there's something there. There really is something that she carries deep within her. I think, that, I think the Hebrew word for it is guts. <laughs> she's a courageous young woman. She's not so afraid. She's full of fear, maybe, but she's not so afraid that she cannot take on an angel. She can challenge God. Her question when she says, how can this be, really is a way of her to, for her to be saying, I'm not sure about this. You may be a heavenly messenger, but really, how can this possibly be? My friend Andy came to see me several years ago. 
He was a member of the church I was serving as pastor back then. Andy and I had gotten to be really good buddies. Andy's a huge baseball fan. He's kind of like Jim Long. I, I could mention a baseball player's name or a team or a year, and the next thing you know, the two of us could go back and forth sharing all kinds of stories about those particular teams and players and, and years. He and I became very, very close. He sang in the choir, had a beautiful voice, very active in the church, but he'd come to see me because the nominating committee had called and nominated him to be an elder in the church, in the congregation. Elders in that church are sort of the spiritual leaders, they would call them, people with their finger on the spiritual life, the spiritual pulse of the, of the church. Andy came and said, Glenn, there's no way I can do this. I, I mean, just, I, there's just no way. I mean, you know me, you know who the real me is. I, there's just no way that I could ever live up to this role. And I said, Andy, you need to understand there isn't a single person in the pulpit, there isn't a single person in a leadership role in the church who stands there for any other reason than the very grace of God. Any pastor who tells you otherwise is a fool, either a fool or a liar. You know, you know you've been, you've been gifted, and now you've been called. And then I said, Andy, in fact, your hesitancy, your willingness to confess that you're far short of perfect is a sign that you're more than ready for this role. He smiled and said, I knew you were gonna say something like that. <laughs> I remind him of the words of my good friend, Robert Farrar Capon, one of my favorite theologians, who used to say, if a sinner can't preach, if a sinner can't be a leader in the church, who's left? Yeah, there's truth there. There's truth there. We serve the church by the grace of God. It's God who comes to us and sees the gifts that God has given us beyond all the imperfections. And that's the one that God calls to lead. Well, the conversation with, with, that Mary has with the angel reveals a very similar point. How can this be? Now she says, I'm a virgin, so on the surface of it, it seems as though what she's concerned about is this physical question about, about her virginity. But on a deeper level, really, it's about her own feelings of inadequacy, her own concern that she really is far short of perfect and a, and a nobody. And by the way, I wanna say this very clearly, but let's not get hung up on the, on the virgin birth. Too many, too many arguments, too many conversations go, go, go down that road, and the next thing you know, we've gotten nowhere, frankly. The fundamentalists on one side will argue forever to try to prove it. The liberals forever will argue to try to delegitimize de it and forget about it. And then we both miss the mystery of the story of God coming to this little one, this one with no power, no fame, no fortune, this one that God wants to use in a way that the world perhaps has never seen before. And who is she really? Well, as I said a moment ago, she's one who's willing to challenge God. She's one who's willing to challenge the angel. She's one who's willing to say exactly what's going on. Why is this happening? Who are you? What's going to happen next? What's the, what are the steps we're going to take? This, she may be a nobody from nowhere, but like I said, she's got guts. She's got courage. She's got tenacity. And maybe that's why God called her. Maybe, call, maybe God called her to be the theotokos, the bearer of God, because of these very traits, that she would be willing to, to not only endure the pain of childbirth, but to endure some of the pain and the sorrow of watching this one grow to adulthood, of hearing him preach and teach on love and grace, and yet see him rejected, scorned, beaten, left, left behind. Maybe that's 
why she's been called, because she has the courage to stand with him even at the cross. The miracles come to her. And now after hearing the angel say some more, she says to the angel, did you hear it in the reading? Here am I. Let it be. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, I hear Paul McCartney singing in the background. I can hear him singing right now. When I, how, you know how it goes? When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me singing words of wisdom. Let it be. Ron, Ron where's Ron? Ron, we know the Beatles. We don't know the Bible. This is amazing. How does it go, though? What's the next part of that verse? Speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. There's a reason why this song is still a hit. There's a reason why 2,000 years later, we still listen to Mary's words. We still recount this story. Why? Because troubles and darkness are as real today as they were then. Whatever was going on in the world in the 60s was no worse, really, than it is today. Whatever was going on in Mary's time 2,000 years ago is no worse, really, than it is today. The song and Mary's story implore us to name the trouble, to name the darkness, to identify the perplexities, whatever they might be, and then realize that God is spirit is with us, and therefore, let it be. Let it be. But listen, hear those words correctly. That's, that's not a way of just throwing up your hands and saying, I can't do anything about it. It's what it is, is what it is. Let's just move on. Nothing to do here, nothing to see here. No, this is a statement of courage. This is a statement of tenacity. This is a statement of I'm turning my face forward and no matter what the world throws at me, no matter what happens, I have a mission in life. I have a purpose in this life. I'm gonna let it be and I'm gonna go on forward. That's what's happening here in this text. It's a word of faith. This is the act of a courageous and brave young woman who in the trouble and the darkness nonetheless trusts that God is present with her. Still though, there's a, there's a feeling of ambiguity here, of, of sort of nebulousness. Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a great theologian in the last century, he, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, it's likely we will see God at work in the ambiguities the twists and ironies of human history. He's really onto something there. The greatest work of God rarely takes place in the places of power. Think about it. Where was Moses born? In the home of a Hebrew slave in Egypt. Moses eventually becomes the great leader who leads them out of slavery. Where was Jesus born? In a stable, not in Jerusalem, not in Rome, but in a stable 20 miles away from the seat of power, surrounded by animals and stench. And he becomes the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. The implication is to pay attention to the margins, to the edges, to the ambiguities, and to see that that is where God is doing God's greatest work. President Trump puts out a tweet, hundreds of millions freak out on one side or the other, and all that kind of attention is thrown towards those simple little words that are there. Forget about that. Pay attention to the edge of our country. Look at the margins of our world and look deeply there and what will you see? You'll see God at work. Maybe the same is true in your soul too. Maybe the same is true of us in the center of who we are. The greatest miracles often take place in the quiet willingness 
of people like you and me to say yes. So I'm wondering today, are you ready for a miracle? Are you ready for God to come down to you, to your home, to your life, to pronounce that you are chosen by God? What darkness or fear is holding you back? What perplexity is causing you to be confused, not knowing what to do today or tomorrow or the next day or in the next year? What trouble have you been unwilling to name? Why are you so confused? What is it you're trying to avoid? You see, in my experience this time of year, people are ready for miracles. People are ready to believe that somehow, some way, it's true. You know something I'm going to do this afternoon? I'm going to turn on my computer, and I'm going to go to the NORAD website. Have you ever been to the NORAD website? And do you know what they're doing on NORAD right now? They're tracking Santa Claus. And I got to tell you, I kind of believe it's real. And I want to believe it's real. But sometimes, I've also noticed as a pastor that during this time of year, people aren't ready for miracles. And when it does come, they aren't quite sure what to do. And some may even run the other way. There's an old movie I, I, I just love. It's from back in the 90s. It's called Leap of Faith, starring Steve Martin. Maybe you saw it way back in like 1992, 93, somewhere like that. Steve Martin plays this charlatan preacher, this charlatan evangelist who travels from town to town to town. He's got a big tent, got a great choir behind him, this gospel choir that just can really rock and roll. And what he does is he does a bunch of fake miracles. He sets people up on the side to come forward. They give him this fake miracle. They take a big offering. He pockets all the money. They get the heck out of town. They come to one town, though, and there's a boy a young boy that they're not able to keep off the stage who seriously has a disability. He's been disabled since birth. The whole town knows it. Steve Martin, though, in this, in this role as this character, he just ignores that. And he, can, he can get people's attention away from that boy and get people's attention away from the real needs and just, just to mesmerize him for a while, take another big offering. But then he's exposed before his final, his final worship service. The sheriff of the town, Liam Neeson, exposes him for being a fraud. But he's such a brilliant preacher. Even in that expose, he's able to somehow bring the crowd back around to his side to get them singing and, and dancing with the choirs. The choirs singing, are you ready for a miracle? And they sing back, ready as we can be. And then, that disabled boy that everyone knows is really disabled is in the back of the tent. He drops his crutches. He's been disabled for a lot since life, since birth. He walks down the center aisle. People are cheering and dancing and celebrating, except for Steve Martin, the preacher. He leaves. He escapes under cover of darkness. Do you see what the story is telling us? His whole life was a fraud, a fake. He was a charlatan, and when a miracle really did come, one that he couldn't control, one that he couldn't command, he did not want to know what to do, and he ran away. What about you? Are you ready for a miracle? Are you ready for a miracle of grace? Are you ready for the, the inbreaking and the indwelling of God's Spirit on, on you and your life? You see, the selection of Mary as, this, as the one who would be the Theotokos opens us up to the possibility of what God wants to do in us in you and me, maybe even in our church. This story sets a table for the unexpected, the unknown, the unimaginable to occur in our lives, maybe even in our congregation. We're gonna be talking a lot about this in January and February here at First Community Church, about what's happening next, what's God's Spirit wanting to do now, and it's gonna maybe even be unimaginable 
unexpected, unknown, but we've got to open ourselves up to God's Spirit in order for that to take place. And yeah, it's frightening, whether we're talking about it as a congregation or we're talking about it as individuals. About 13 months ago, I got a call from Ginny Barney. She was the chair of the search committee looking for the new senior minister here at First Community. She wanted me to know that I was the, the choice. I said yes, hung up the phone, and then I said, oh no. <laughs> May I confess it was with equal parts excitement and honestly fear that I said yes to come here to serve as your pastor. But that's the way it is when God calls on us, when God calls us in, out of our, our lives to carry forward whatever God has next for us. It's not always going to be easy. What does God want from you is the question. What does God want? Barbara Brown Taylor, who's a, a great preacher, she asked that question, what does God want? She says what God wants is you. Not the perfect you, not the I look great on a Sunday morning you, not the you that has the house elegantly decorated, the, pre the presents all wrapped just so, and the meal ready to go for tomorrow, and it's going to be amazing. Martha Stewart would be jealous of it, you? No, not that you. 4 a.m. you. Nighttime you. The one that wakes up in the middle of the night worrying about what tomorrow is going to bring. The one who sometimes is caught in fear. Why is it that that's the one that God wants? Because perfect you, looking great you on a Sunday morning, is too guarded, too protected for God's spirit to get through. It's the you that no one else but God knows that God wants because God knows at the center of who you are, you are already gifted and blessed in a way that you could never imagine. Are you ready for a miracle? See, there's a promise implied in this story. Is a desire to, of God to come to all of us, to each of us, to every one of us, that God is coming to all. Now think about what that means tomorrow, especially when you gather around with your family and friends for, for whatever your Christmas celebration and dinner looks like. Think about it. In fact, it means this. It means that God even wants to come to your weird Uncle Bob. How many of you have a weird Uncle Bob? Does some of you have a weird Uncle Bob? Maybe it's a strange Aunt Gertie. How many of you have a strange Aunt Gertie? Or a wacky Grandpa Willie? Or you see what I'm getting at? Everybody's family's got somebody. We had an Uncle Bob in our family who showed up for all these events. He wasn't even related to us. He just showed up one Thanksgiving and said, I'm a friend of your dad's, but you can call me Uncle Bob. And he just came every time. He was crazy as all get out. But even Uncle Bob and, and wild, wild, wonderful Grandpa Willie are ones that God wants to bless, no matter who they are. If we say yes with Mary, if we sing Let It Be with Paul McCartney, then God will be ready to do something amazing, even wonderful in your life. But let's be careful, though. It may not be easy. I read about a casting call last week for a church Christmas pageant. The pastor sent a note out, middle of November, and said, we're gonna have a Christmas pageant this year. We want all the children in the, in the church from kindergarten through fifth grade to be involved. We'll have a role for everybody. There'll be limited speaking roles, but everybody will get to do something in the pageant. 
So it's the last Saturday in November. There's like a hundred kids gathered on the chancel. They're going through all the different roles, different things that can be done. And the director of the pageant says, which one of you would like to be Mary? And every little girl raises her hand. Because of course, everyone wants to be Mary, right? She's the star of the show. She's the one on whom the spotlight is shining. And yet, this pastor friend of mine who told me this story wonders, do we really want to be Mary? Do we really want to be the one who will bear this child in pain? into the world? Do, do we really want to be the one who will see him in pain? You see, a miracle doesn't mean a life of ease. I tend to think of miracle as winning the lottery. I haven't bought a ticket in years, but I still think I might win. That's not the miracle that God gives us. The miracle that God gives is a call in your life, an invitation for you, whether you're nine or 99, to take hold of your life, to open your spirit, to let the gifts that you have blossom and bloom. So then what about you? What is God calling you to today? What new task has been set before you? Are you ready to find a quiet space where your pain will be transformed, where your fear will move toward faith, where your worry will be opened toward wonder? Are you ready for a miracle? Are you ready for the Lord God of all that is to let that God's spirit blow within your soul, to open your sails and let that wind take you wherever God calls you next? You see, because God is ready to give you the greatest gift, a life, a life that matters. Do not be afraid.